Hey guys, how's it going? Hey Josh, how are you? Hi guys. I'm very well, Nalan. And thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Nice one. Before we get properly into it, I'll just give a quick introduction to what it is we're doing and what these conversations are, these quick one with conversations. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that these are conversations with professionals working in sport, such as yourself, as you would have over a drink in a bar post-work. That's the idea. So before we get into the serious stuff, if we were in a bar, what would your drink be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd I'd kill for a well-poured pint of Guinness, to be honest. And uh, that's not just because it was St. Patrick's Day yesterday. I just love a good Guinness. I love that. And yeah, very good, very good reference there. It's, it's very apt to be to be craving a Guinness right now. And the second question is, what was the last bit of sport that you either watched or talked about before coming on here with us? Another good question. Um, I was talking about cycling. I was talking about e-cycling more specifically, if that counts. Absolutely, that counts. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit more about e-cycling. I'm not sure I've, I'm, I'm familiar with it, really. Well, so, let's see. Hmm. We've, seen a, we've seen a massive surge in uh, the participation in virtual sports during this time of, uh, of lockdown and the pandemic and so on. Um, so really, I was I was looking into uh, the platform called Zwift. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of that one, but they've been doing some really cool stuff. They're essentially uh, a platform which you can hook up to your bike trainer at home, uh, which is really simulating a real-life environment on a screen that's hooked up to the entire setup. And you could literally be cycling and competing with, with your friends from all across the world and doing different challenges. You could be racing with cyclists like Fabian Cancellara for all you know, uh, so they've, they've got some really cool stuff happening on that platform. That's literally what I was reading about a short while ago. Nice one. Yeah, it's really interesting. As I say, I hadn't really heard of that before, but I mean, it kind of makes sense. As you were saying, given everything that's going on, but also the rise of eSports. Um, but before we get into that, because I know we will most definitely talk about eSports a little bit later on, given that some of your projects um, that you've worked on in the past... I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what you're doing at the moment with the IOC. How's all that been going and what is your involvement being ahead of Tokyo? Yeah, of course. Well, I've been working at the International Olympic Committee now for about a year and a half. And uh, presently, my uh, roles and responsibilities are split across two different uh, sort of uh, segments, I'd like to say, for the lack of a better term. One of them is uh, within the athlete section of the sports department. Uh, wherein I'm uh, working with the team and supporting them on delivering uh, engagement opportunities with athletes directly. Now, this might sound something very generic for the IOC, but we're doing this under uh, a brand called Athlete365, which I'm not sure if you've heard, but is the IOC's uh, direct communication channel, so to speak, uh, with the athletes and literally serves as, a, as the world's largest community of athletes some Olympians. Um, they've got a really cool. Uh, you've got a really cool bunch of resources on there as well for athletes. Uh, this varies from articles, uh, webinar opportunities, toolkits, um, yeah, a bunch of different resources, which is really looking to uh, 
take into account and improve uh, uh, the opportunities that athletes may have both uh, on and off the field of play, but also looking to widely engage with uh, the entourage of these athletes, which could be uh, physiotherapists, for example, or, or other medics or parents for younger athletes. Uh, for some of them, it could be teachers at school. So that's, that's really a broad sense of what I'm doing um, with, the, with this athlete section team. Uh, and, and this involves a wide range of projects in terms of engagement, which could be anything from uh, activating the brand on ground uh, in the build-up to the games at the key qualification events, as well as looking at innovative ways to spread uh, the values of Olympism, um, as well as uh, disseminate key educational messages to athletes at the Olympic Games. So that's one side of it. The other side is essentially uh, working on ad hoc projects within the sports department. And what that currently entails is some uh, cool projects within uh, virtual sports and gaming. That's to give you a really high level kind of idea of what's uh, happening at my end right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. So for the Athletes365 channel, do you... Is that content creation? Are you are you helping to write stories? Are you reaching out to athletes to sort of see what it is they might need or want in terms of resources? What what exactly is it that you are trying to provide via that channel? Yeah, good one, good question. Um, I'm personally not uh, involved in the content creation side of things, but more more so on how we deliver the key messages to these athletes. For example, uh, as I mentioned to you, um, one of the projects that I was working on last year was uh, activating the brand at key qualifications for the games. So what that meant really is uh, coming up with innovative, cool ideas to discuss the brand with athletes, make sure it's compelling enough for them to really be attracted by it, have an opportunity there. So for example, we set up a, a cool booth with a photo opportunity with the backdrop of Tokyo, as well as the Olympic torch in front of it. So we could come down and have a, have a picture with the torch. Uh, at, at the same time, we're then able to engage with them discuss with them, talk to them about the brand, and also uh, maybe give them a, a quick you know, two-minute quiz to test out their knowledge of uh, all things Athlete 365. Now, those could be topics such as you know, the importance of mental health, the importance of safeguarding in sport, um, why nutrition is important, uh, what are the different elements of ensuring uh, and preventing the manipulation of uh, competition, for example. So really essential areas uh, that athletes should be well uh, equipped to deal with, if that makes sense. But at the same time, delivering these messages in a very uh, lighthearted and entertaining manner, because we don't want it to seem like a very heavy dose of institutional messaging. But at the same time, we are delivering important messages. That's an example of a project that I've been working on. So what is it? I mean, every time I hear about people that get to work most often with athletes, that's, I think, the bit that everyone's always interested in when they hear you work in sport. But what is it like working with the athletes as your consumer, I guess, in a way? Of, have you had to really change your thinking of how you approach, I guess, a traditional consumer compared to an athlete? Um, I'd say so. Well, for me, the biggest learning here has been really engaging with athletes from all over the world. And you really see the, the differing needs of athletes, not just on the basis of, um, you know, where they come from and the, the life chances that they have in the country that they origin, originate from, but at the same time, the sport that they're competing in. For example, you'd have athletes who would be retiring 
much later if they're engaged in say equestrian sports or disciplines as opposed to maybe a hundred meter runner. So the, 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 the journey at which we have to engage with these athletes is slightly different based on the sport as well. And that's a very interesting learning for me, um, which I never really <laughs> put much thought into before because we have a bunch of programs. We have a bunch of programs such as mentoring opportunities for our athletes as they look to uh, sort of uh, transition from uh, their competitive career into the, 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 the wider workplace, so to speak. And a lot of them do feel the need to have support during this time because all they've been doing throughout their life is, is essentially competing and training. Uh, so to be able to deliver and assist them, we have to be able to understand what part of that journey they're on. And that really comes down to what sport, what country, what life chances and everything that's around it. So that's, that's kind of a very, yeah, it's been a very interesting learning to really look at the different elements and the moving pieces when it comes to delivering these messages, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And so do you guys actually offer all of those, those mentorship or do you guys more point them in the right direction to go into? So we, we work uh, on, yeah, we, we do a bit of both. So for example, mentoring, we're, we're working with uh, some of our Olympic partners uh, to deliver this, specifically right now Intel, the Olympic partner, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, working with us to deliver this mentoring program. But then there are a bunch of other resources which we deliver from our platform directly uh, but of course all of this is expert uh, led and crafted by experts and academics and, and professionals who have a vast amount of experience in this space uh, because yeah we're essentially the channel to communicate and hand this information to athletes but in a sense this information has to be crafted by a wide range of individuals who who have a vast amount of knowledge in the space if that makes sense yeah that makes sense so interesting. I mean, I can I can imagine that it just must feel like you could endlessly segment those people, the, the athletes, in terms of where they live in the world, how they, where they are in their life, where they are in their careers and things. That every time it must feel like every single time you feel like you sorted out a journey, there's a new one that comes up. Absolutely, absolutely, all the time. Huh? There's uh, there's so much new to learn every single time. Yeah. And what is what is what tends to be sort of the main hurdle that you guys run into? A hurdle. Let's see. That's a good question. I'd, I'd say being able to really identify one core message for everyone, because like I was saying, uh, messages vary so much uh, based on what we're trying to achieve and and who we're trying to deliver it to. So of course, depending on the topic, it it really comes down to who's who's the consumer who's, uh, yeah, who we're targeting and, and, and so on. So identifying really one tone of voice uh, that is able to cater to the wider and, and most uh, expansive reach of athletes, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and Nalan, how long is, have these programs been going? Because I think one of the interesting things about the IOC and the Olympics is obviously with it being a global event, you kind of have to use these these um, technologies and innovations to reach everyone throughout the globe throughout throughout the year because you can't just bring everyone together or wait until everyone's together at the Olympics. So how much is actually everything that's going on in the world? How much is that not affected what the IOC would would be doing anyway? I mean, has has the IOC been been using these technologies and platforms for for years? Great question. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right about saying that it's not just about the games, but it's about the journey. 
Uh, but Active 365 has been around from, I want to say 2018. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I, yeah, it sounds like 2018. However, uh, we have been supporting athletes for much longer than that in other other directions and other means. Uh, but but FT365 itself came around not too long ago, to be honest. And uh, we've managed to onboard uh, about a hundred thousand members in the community since then, which is is quite uh, incredible, if you ask me. Given given how young it is. Well, yeah, that is impressive. And actually, slightly contradicting my last question, how much of a difference has it made the fact that you're not based in Lausanne as, as much as you would have been? Um, it's, it's been interesting, I'd say. Right now, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm calling in from, from India. Um, it, it's, been, it's been good in a sense that I've been able to, uh, you know, spend time with family and work at the same time, which I didn't expect as much before. But at the same time, I do miss uh, being able to see my colleagues and uh, be at the, the office. We've got a pretty cool setup at the office beautiful uh, city that it's based in as well. So, yeah, although productivity has been hit, uh, at the same time I've gotten the opportunity to really uh, spend time with, uh, with friends and family, which I wouldn't have expected before. Yeah, and going back to before you joined the IOC, you were over in Iceland um, and you were, you were working in sport out there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is you were getting up to out there and the company that you actually set up when you were there. Yeah, of course. Uh, so when I got to Iceland, I, I met a couple uh, really uh, driven guys and knowledgeable about esports. We, we got esports, yeah. We got chatting and uh, just decided to set up a company which, uh, which translates from Icelandic to the esports school. Uh, sounds quite cheesy, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And the idea behind this was to essentially try and uh, bridge the worlds of esports and, and traditional sports in order to deliver um, healthy messages and uh, positively influence the habits of traditional gamers into more healthy ones because of uh, all the stigma that there is around uh, the average gamer. Um, we really wanted to shoot down those barriers and, and put it out there that, listen, gaming is actually not just about unhealthy habits, it's actually extremely competitive and it requires a very specific set of skills to be at the top level, just like traditional sports. And what we found interesting was, if you look at the, the, the pyramid of, of esports, really, the very top is where you've got the competitive players playing for, for a bunch of money uh, in different competitions all over the world. and uh, that's where you see that these gamers are really training as they would be in traditional sports, where they've got a whole sort of uh, routine uh, in terms of maybe going to the gym in the morning, doing a bit, bit of yoga, working on uh, their, their lower back, their, their wrist movement and so on, and then working on uh, team, uh, team skills, for example, different drills really, uh, and, and then of course working on their games as well. And, and the rest of the pyramid, is essentially the casual gamers, which are not engaged in these healthy habits, are, are training, or not training, are playing in isolation. And we, we know that that can be detrimental to a large extent. And, and this is one of the reasons why uh, we decided and thought that there is scope for putting together a sort of a company which can create perhaps um, a product which can 
be uh, disseminated to sports clubs if they want to expand into the field of esports, or it could be gaming cafes if they want to enhance and improve on their facilities to really understand uh, what else can be done in the space to create more healthy habits around this and also enhance the level uh, or skill of gamers whilst also making it a more sustainable activity and, and a healthy activity, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I must say, having, I didn't really have much previous knowledge about esports at all until the last couple of years and having watched a few documentaries, it is crazy when you see kind of the investment that's gone into it recently, but also just, as you say, the routines that these guys are now putting themselves into with their fitness trainings and their reflex trainings. Yeah, as you say, their general fitness. So it's really interesting to see how that trickles down to the more amateur levels and interesting to hear about how you were trying to implement that over in, in Iceland as well. And how did you get on? How did that, that company sort of take off? It was, the method was well received. Um, one of the biggest challenges we faced was really identifying what, um, how we would package our product. Would that be a manual or would that be a video? Or would that be a sort of consultancy if a club reached out to us? So this is something we were really having a tough time cracking because in essence, it was a combination of some elements of the traditional sports movement as well as elements of the esports movement, right? So for example, we had for, for let's say, kids under the age of 12, uh, the beginner's course to Fortnite and what that entails. Uh, so for example, they'd have to come down to uh, the gaming cafe that we first started off at and start off with maybe warming up uh, talking about uh, what their ambition behind the session was. Then the coach would come in and talk to them about one specific element within the game, for example, building or how to uh, maximize uh, your ability to you know, win the game within the first 30 seconds, the things that you have to look out for and so on. And then after a few, few minutes, say 15, 20 minutes into that, we'd, we'd stop, we'd break off into different sessions try to put the kids into different groups and really get them to talk about what they could have done better, how they could have strategized better, lead them to think and make decisions that are well-informed, and so on. So that's, that's the kind of direction we took over there. And while it worked, and while a lot of sports clubs really engaged with what we were doing and came forward to understand how they could adopt such a habit or such a you know regime within their facilities, it was also challenging because Iceland as a market is a very small one and we, we needed to go a little bit more global in order to remain sustainable uh, financially, primarily. So it was, it was a bit challenging to kind of find that mix of how do we sell this in different forms outside of Iceland. Yeah, absolutely. And actually you touched on it there. I mean, you touched on the fact that Iceland is such a small country with a very small population. and. As a, as a Scotsman, I always think that, you know, Scotland does well in sport and punches above its weight. And I'm sure, Bastian, you think similarly about Holland, you know, re, um, relatively a small country, but definitely an overachiever in terms of sports. But Iceland does seem to take it to the next level. I mean, just talking about football alone, Iceland does seem to punch above its weight on a regular basis. And I mean, I think that's obviously transferable to lots of other sports. What was your take on the Icelandic approach to sport and how they do manage to, as I say, punch above their weight so consistently. Oh man, it was it was beautiful. 
it was beautiful. I was just blown away. So while I was uh, working on the eSports school with, uh, with my colleagues and friends, uh, I was also uh, coaching in football, different age groups in football. I've, I've been coaching football for some time, so I really wanted to explore this area in Iceland as well, given, given their experience and, and uh, their status in football for different reasons. Uh, Iceland really epitomizes the value that we all seek to make out of sport in saying that it has really made sport a fundamental right for all, which is just fantastic. Um, so to give, you, to give you some context, for, for example, let's say we have the city of Reykjavik, which is the only real city in Iceland. Everything else is literally a town or a small village. Uh, the city of Reykjavik would be broken down into different uh, communities, let's say smaller versions of districts, for the lack of a better term. Each of these communities would have a dedicated uh, sports community center. And the residents of a specific community would be able to access the facility at the center and engage in different sporting activities. And that's a wide range of sports. It could be, it could be from football to skiing, uh, to judo, to, to weightlifting, and you, yeah, the list goes on. But the idea here being they, they don't really cut players based on their skill level. All ages are welcome to come in and join, and they have a program for all sports, or all the available sports, which accepts um, interested athletes or, or sportsmen, or the casual, casual players in different sports, to come in and part, take part in their programs, this, regardless of their age, their, their ability, which is fantastic, because when I was, I was training the under-17s, uh, at a specific club in Iceland, specific community that itself had 165 kids under one group for just the under 17 group, which tells me, yeah, two things. One, that it's, it's very inclusive in terms of not cutting players based on their talent. And they did so by uh, really breaking down those, that massive group of players into different skill sets and skill, skill levels rather, and had competitive games and tournaments for each of those skill groups, which means that regardless of your ability, you're competing at some level and are playing with those who are at similar level, if not a little better than you. And, and that continues all the way through up until you hit an adult fully and, and, and get into like the more competitive, serious stuff. Uh, and the second thing that tells me is that someone's really counting the population of Iceland wrong because if I had 170, 160 some kids, just the under 17s in one club, <laughs> the population numbers aren't adding up. Yeah, maybe you're right. But um, but in in direct contrast to to Iceland on the other side of the world and where you are currently, India, it's it's been a case of actually trying to get more and more people involved. It doesn't seem to be such a sort of a given that the young people are going to get involved in sport, particularly young women. How have you seen that change over the last few years? Yeah, it's a, it's a shame, really. Uh, India's been the sleeping giant in the sport industry for the longest time now. It continues to sleep, if you were to ask me. It's a shame because, in a simplistic way, sport in India really comes down to uh, the socioeconomic background of an individual. Um, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Young women in sport in India, that's uh, it's very rare to see. It's very shameful, in my opinion. Uh, what's happened in recent years is the private industry has really uh, stepped into the scene and 
taking charge and this has led to the institutionalization of different sports leagues such as the Indian Super League for football, we have the Kabaddi League for, for our traditional sport Kabaddi, Badminton League and so on, which has really kind of uh, led the government, I think, in my opinion, uh, to wake up and realize that, listen, we have to do something about this. The private sector is here doing everything and this is putting us on the map. Now it's time for us to wake up and, and really do something about it. I don't believe that they're doing everything that they should be uh, at this point of time, but change is happening, albeit very slowly. I think there needs to be a lot more efforts to uh, have like more PPPs in place in order to, to really push things forward. Uh, that said, again, it's, it's, a, it's very much a pay-to-play kind of culture, which, which is uh, difficult, uh, especially given the vast majority of our country cannot afford to do so. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point to think about. It's, I'm a hockey player myself, and India, of course, was the, the nation, the, the hockey nation for many years. Um, my, my dad used to tell me about stories of the Dutch national team going to India and playing in a stadium of about 100,000 people just watching hockey, which, I mean, now you could never imagine. But then very quickly, well, cricket obviously became the more popular sport. And someone once explained it to me very simply, well, for hockey, you need, you need well, 22 sticks and a ball. With cricket, all you need is a ball and a bat. Um, so it's really interesting sort of to, to hear that perspective of how it's a pay-to-play culture and what kind of effect it's had on what sports have become popular. Yeah, I, I, that's a great point there, uh, Bass. And you're talking about just needing a ball and a bat, but in football, in a sense, you, you just need a ball, isn't it? And you can, you can arrange play. And it's crazy to think that that's not still uh, taking precedent over, over, say, other sports, given the easy access. But yeah. it's interesting, like, go, going back in history, when the, when the British left India, uh, at that point of time, little known fact, but India was incredible in football. So much so that we were actually beating uh, the colonizers at their own sport. And this is around the time when countries in Asia started touring other countries to play the sport and other Asian countries were really frightened to come down to India to compete with us because we were that good. What happened is, once the Britishers left, uh, the party that came into power and the policies that uh, subsequently sort of led uh, into whatever was happening today, reinforced the, the caste system to a great extent, or that was perhaps a subproduct of the policies. And in any other world, in any other country, you've seen around that period of industrialization that it was really the coming together of the working class and the elite that established the club systems in football in different parts of the world. But in India, it was a little different because the very bottom of that caste system was the untouchables. So in essence, you would require the very elite to come on the same pitch and make contact with a class that was not supposed to be made contact with. So, so we had a segmentation in the classes and this coming together of classes in football never really happened in the country. So it took a bit of a backseat. And this is the same time in cricket was coming to the fore. And of course, in cricket, you don't need to make contact. So it's much easier to compete across classes as opposed to football. The contact is absolutely required. And this is a very simplistic way of looking at it. But this is, in essence, a lot of, uh, a lot of what's happened in the past. That's really interesting. I never... Yeah, that's, that's a lesson there for me in sort of the history of sport in, in India and why, India, why football is not 
is big and because it's a good point because the argument doesn't the argument I made doesn't stand for football in terms of what you need to to play it. Um, and it's do you think apart from just the fact that cricket is a non-contact sport, um, to what extent do you think national success plays a role in this in the success of a sport at grassroots level? It's a massive role. I mean, absolutely massive. We've seen the kind of success you've had with the Indian cricket team in the recent past. That kind of has a role and effect of, of really the priorities of the government or the officials to invest money in spaces where there is more of a for national prestige factor, if that makes sense. However, if, if that, was a, that was the case back, back in 1947, Football should have come to the fore, but other other sort of elements came uh, to the fore at that point of time. And again, national prestige in sport has become very much a more recent thing. So I do understand why that's more of a of a reason why we have cricket as such a yeah uh, superior sport in the country, for the lack of a better term. Yeah, and I guess looking at it in a in a sense of we're now at the very top of the world we need to put the systems in place at a grassroots level to be able to continuously identify the talents to maintain their success exactly so in your current role at the ioc how do you ensure that you're always going to stay ahead try and stay ahead and be innovative and not fall into the status quo i guess in a way that it might be quite easy at the ioc yeah no good question i think the easy answer is listening to the athletes that's that's really the, the answer, in my opinion, because the athletes are at the heart of the sporting movement globally. Uh, and, and being able to identify their needs and cater to them really leads us to understand what has to be done in the time to come in order to stay ahead of the curve, if that makes sense. Uh, the more we listen to athletes, the more we can innovate, the more we can react, be more proactive as opposed to reactive, let's say that. Um, and again, I come back to Athlete 365 where we launched uh, different surveys to identify the needs of athletes and what areas they might want more resources in, for example. When we went into the first lockdown uh, globally, we, we launched a survey to really identify what their needs was and, and we, um, we learned that the uh, vast majority of the athletes, no surprises here, were finding it difficult to stay motivated to train, were finding it difficult to access facilities. So it really became a sort of uh, a position for us where we, we had to cater to their needs to keep them or, or produce more content on, for example, mental health, because we've seen this, this the emphasis uh, on mental health uh, during this time because it's led to a lot more isolation of not just athletes, but even people in the wider public. Yeah, because I'm just, I'm just trying to think of like, if, if this, if Athlete 365 was around, 10 years ago, to what issues it was probably addressing at that point and what issues it might be addressing today, but also in the next coming years. And probably the first one that comes to mind is like social media management and how, how do you deal with sudden bursts of attention on social media, especially the young athletes? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that, Bass, because we've got a wide range of resources on that on our platform. Um, and, and really how to uh, brand yourself as an athlete in order to seem more attractive uh, to sponsors, for example, or to make sure that you're staying true to your uh, supporters and your fans. 
um, how to manage a PR crisis and all of these different things. Not all athletes can afford to deploy agencies or, or agents. So they need to have a, a basic understanding of dealing with these issues themselves. And that's in a sense the job of Athlete365 to make it a level playing field in terms of resources for as many athletes and uh, coming from different sports and countries as possible. Yeah, I think it's a great initiative. I think it's, it's fantastic that you're doing that and then making that available for as many athletes as possible. Absolutely. And, uh, and Alan, what are your uh, thoughts on Athlete 365 preparing athletes for India 2048? 2048, eh? <laughs> I mean, you've had, uh, you've had a lot of... Uh, uh, let's say speculation uh, that, that India has been wanting to line up um, bid for some time, but it, it hasn't been successful so far. But we, we have to see what happens. Yeah, I read up some. I was a bit surprised when I saw that headline, but I read up uh, a little bit, and apparently the 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 cities that are lined up are Brisbane for 2032, and then London for 2036 again, and. They've apparently been given a bit of a boost because of the IOC's emphasis on the sustainability aspect of the games. And I think Paris has actually just come out and said that they want to become the first climate positive Olympics. How much has sustainability had an impact on what you're doing? Have you had to, to, to work on that at all? Uh, as, as, well, firstly, uh, Brisbane hasn't been given the games yet. They have gone into a targeted uh, dialogue uh, with the different stakeholders in the space uh, to sort of uh, move the process forward, but that hasn't been officially stated yet. They, they haven't received the, the bidding right for the game just yet. Uh, that's a work in progress. But you're, you're right, the, the targeted dialogue really uh, is on the basis of, of sustainability and the fact that they have uh, infrastructure set up in the, in the country, in the, in the cities, that allows for them to have a more sustainable games, the, the, the sporting venues and so on. How much has sustainability been a part of what we're doing? It's, it's at the forefront of all the different uh, functions of the IOC, really. Um, and that's also for us looking at uh, educating perhaps uh, our athletes on, on different sustainability measures. Uh, for example, we've had webinars in the recent past that, that discuss uh, all things uh, climate change and how some athletes have had to um, overcome adverse weather conditions during their training and, and competition. So these different elements are definitely taken into Yeah. I don't know why I was, I was, I feel like I should have known this, but India hasn't actually ever hosted an Olympics. So I do, I do really hope they get to host it in 2048 or, or before then. But how, how are you feeling ahead of, of Tokyo in terms of India's Olympic medal chances? Mm, wow, good question. Let's see. I mean, being being a sports uh, enthusiast from India uh, has comes with a lot of you know expectation control uh, until of course you're watching cricket and a big cricket fanatic, so I'm not expecting significant uh, results. But I know our, our uh, track and field athletes have been doing good in the space. We've got a couple of wrestlers, our badminton players are also looking good in the build up. So it's, it's looking better than before, but, you know, I mean, let, let's see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll end on this to, to go back to what we were talking about at the start. 
How are your medal chances looking out of your cycling now? I, I was meaning to ask if you'd picked that up again since you'd got back to India. My medal chances in cycling, you say? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea, mate. Yeah, maybe my community. I might finish 10th in, in my community of maybe 50 people. But nothing better than that. <laughs> the lockdown's gotten the best of me. I'm craving to get outside and play much more football than, I'd, than I have been. But let's see. Hopefully that changes soon. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. I think we're all in the same boat. Thank you very much. I think we'll wrap it up there. It was really interesting to have you on. Thank you so much. And yeah, hopefully we can catch up again soon. And if I don't speak to you properly beforehand, best of luck with Tokyo. I know it's going to be a, a huge operation for everyone involved. So yeah, best of luck and uh, enjoy. Thanks, guys. Uh, really appreciate you guys having me over. Great, great conversation. Great chatting with you guys and looking forward to the, hearing the next ones. Good luck. Yeah, great speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys.